Ванной шли вдвоем, а фонарики горели. И прибитие их на момент прийти, и сердце нашей земле. Well, hello and welcome to the SRB podcast. I'm your host, Sean Gillery. Once again, it's just uh, me and Rusana Novikova to do this episode. Margaret is still away. Hopefully she'll be back in a couple of weeks. As you know, the SRB podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and members of the SRB Table of Ranks who generously give monthly contributions anywhere between $5 to $25, sometimes less, sometimes more. We don't care. We'll, we'll take it. And so if you'd like to support this podcast, please go to our Patreon page at patreon.com slash Sean's Russia blog or to srbpodcast.org and find that Patreon button and become a member of the Table of Ranks. So this week we have an interview with uh, Timothy Blauvelt about um, patron-client networks in Abkhazia in the early Soviet period, so in the 1920s and 1930s, uh, focusing on one of the important political figures in Abkhazia at the time, Nestor Lakoba. So let's jump right into it. And Rusana, if you would please introduce Timothy. Timothy Blauvelt is professor of Soviet and post-Soviet studies at Elia State University in Tbilisi, Georgia, and regional director for the South Caucasus for American Councils for International Education. His newest book is Clientism and Nationality in an Early Soviet Fiefdom, The Trials of Nestor Lakoba, published by Rutledge. Here's Timothy Blauvelt. Like I said, it's, it's uh, you know, it's really great that you dealt with this topic of clientism and particularly in a place like Abkhazia. So you have this book called Clientism and Nationality in, in an Early Soviet Fiefdom, The Trials of Nestor Lakoba. And just to start our conversation, I mean, I think Rusana, Rusana and I were both curious as to why Abkhazia as a place to look at the issues of clientism and nationality policies in the um, 1920s and 30s Soviet Union? Well, I, I think there's only a long answer possible, which is that I've been in the Caucasus for a really long time. Um, I've, I've been working here for, for 20 years, and, and I, I first came here to do my dissertation in 1999-2000. And, and at that time, I was doing my uh, dissertation in, in political science, and uh, I was interested in in nationalism and the effects of political culture and, and hierarchy on, on nationalism. Um, but being in Georgia, uh, Abkhazia is uh, obviously an important topic, and especially then in the late 1990s, it was only a few years after the war had ended. Uh, the city was full of refugees. The, the towering hotel in the center of the city had been turned into a refugee camp. Uh, and Abkhazia itself was is just a really interesting place, and it is a really a subtropical a uh, strip of land. Uh, it's one that people from Georgia really can't go to, or most Georgians can't go there. Um, I ended up having to... Wait, wait, why is why is that? Uh, because it's a post-conflict zone, and they, they okay. don't let Georgians in. I mean, I knew it was a post-conflict zone, but not that they didn't allow Georgians in. Uh, oh, I'm sorry, I interrupted you. Go ahead. <laughs> only, only the Georgians who are refugees from the Southern District are, are allowed to go back, uh, and otherwise not. Um, so uh, I, I wrote my dissertation about Georgia. I ended up coming back to Georgia as a Fulbright professor in 2002. And uh, I started working with American councils on educational exchange programs in 2003. And I was going to Abkhazia quite a lot and not, not as a tourist zone, conf uh, a, a war zone tourist or, or uh, 
as a researcher, but to do interviews for educational exchange programs. And, and, and so going there every, every year, and we could see that this is a place which was once really luxurious, where there are resorts, where the leaders had, had dachas, um, and yet it had the kind of feel of a, a resort town out of season, but perpetually out of season. Um, and especially in the late 90s and the 2000s, there really wasn't very much tourism. It was sort of half empty. Um, and I, I'd also been really interested in uh, in clientelism from a political science point of view, and I had become particularly interested in in Beria and the the way that Beria's career began in the Caucasus and how he used clientelism for um, sort of bringing a cohort from the secret police into the party leadership. Um, the thing that really interested me in Abkhazia and clientelism was a biography, an autobiography by um, a first party secretary in Abkhazia who later became the first party secretary in Georgia, a guy named Akaki Mgiladze, who was a, a Stalin appointee, a real Stalin guy. And, and his, he was such a Stalinist that his, he named his own autobiography, Stalin Kakim Yayevoznal. <laughs> and, and in this book, he describes all of these issues that he would bring up walking on the embankment or hanging out uh, in a resort with Stalin and say, we need to do this, or we need investment for to rebuild the, the road on the coastline. We need, uh, we need investment for the metallurgical plants in Rastavi. We don't need to resettle the population of Sarpi. And in every case, Stalin would say, yes, that's a good idea. Let it be done. Tell Vaskorobyshev and we'll, we'll, it'll be. So it's sort of this proximity to power. The fact that you had elites coming there and staying there, uh, meant that you had this opportunity <laughs> to get FaceTime, which is political capital. Um, and so in, in 2007, I, I published an article um, on patronage and power in, in the Stalin area, looking at the, the course of Abkhazia from the beginning of the Soviet period really to the end of, of, of the Stalin era and the way that it was important exactly because it gave you this kind of access and this FaceTime. Um, and I ended up, um, so I, I mentioned I was a political scientist to begin with, and I I'm, was never trained as a historian or, or as an archival historian, but over the course of uh, 10 years or so of, of actually getting access to the remarkable stuff that is in, in Georgia, and the KGB archives, the party archives, all of which were accessible. Uh, and especially back then in the, in the, in the 2000s, it was, all of it was sitting on the floor of the ML building, the, the basement of ML, the Marx-Lenin uh, Institute. And you could photograph as much as you want. You could do as much as you It was completely open. Um, and there was a lot of stuff about this, about Abkhazia, about the period, about, uh, about ultimately the resettlement of, of Georgians from uh, Western Georgia into Abkhazia. Um, so I, I published a number of articles about nationality policy in, in Soviet Abkhazia, about language policy, um, about the uprisings against collectivization. Um, and I had this idea that maybe I should put those together and, and sort of write a history of Soviet Abkhazia. Um, and so I'd set about doing that maybe five or six years ago. And, and in digging further into uh, the, the party archives, um, I found so much about the 1920s and about Lakoba uh, that I ended up just focusing on that. And the other element of it is another amazing source about Abkhazia and Abkhazia in this period. Uh, and that is the personal archive of, of Lakoba himself, which is held in the Hoover uh, Institution uh, at Stanford. Uh, and I've been using some documents from that, yeah. Right, that's an amazing story of even how the how his papers ended up at the Hoover. A very un, I mean, it's not an unlikely place for this type of stuff, but it's unlikely that this ended up there. Yeah, exactly. So it's this remarkable collection, and we think that part of it was burned by Lakoba's wife, and 
but it was hidden. She hid it in the floorboards in their apartment uh, in 1937. And then 20 years later, a relative coming back from the gulag dug it up again. And what happened between then and <laughs> the time it ended up in Stanford is, is, is kind of hazy, but, but it did end up there. Um, and so that uh, collection has been used a lot, um, especially in biographies of Beria. Um, and there is a lot of sort of low-hanging fruit in, in that archive, stuff that's typewritten, stuff that's, that's cataloged. Um, in 2017, I, I was able to go to Stanford and I, I photographed the whole thing. And it's, it's not that large. It's, it's three boxes. Uh, first two boxes are mainly documents. The third box is, is a collection of photographs. And those photographs are quite famous too. There's a number of those that you, you probably have seen before of, of Stalin on vacation. There's a famous picture of um, Stalin's daughter, Aloyuva, sitting on the knee of Beria. Um, often they're un they're unattributed. Yeah, when I when I saw saw read that in your book, I was like, oh wow, that's where that I mean, because I know that I mean, I think almost everybody knows that photo. Can can I say one thing before just to finish my thought about why I brought this up? <laughs> oh sure, go ahead. So a lot of this material has been used before, but there's a huge amount of it which is completely uncatalogued, completely out of order. Lots of handwritten documents, uh, a really mishmash of stuff, and and so I took about a year trying to uh, put those things in order, figure out what they are. And a lot of those things made sense only in combination with the things that I was finding in the Georgian Party archive and vice versa. And so those two things put together began to give the outlines of these political conflicts, about these tribunals, about these these issues. Actually, I have, I have, I have a follow-up. Um, you know, this, it's, it's, the issue of clientism in this period is an interesting has an interesting history in terms of the, the historiography, right? Because it was dealt with a bit in the seventies and eighties, and then it kind of fell to the wayside to some, you know, in, in some respects. But then it, it's kind of had a it's had this resurgence in the last you know ten fifteen years ago. And I'm saying this because I'm a student of Arch Geddes who also is dealing with these issues. Talk about the work that's been done on clientism so far and how you fit into it. Yeah, well, as you say, there had been a lot done about this in the in the 1960s and the 1970s, Robert Conquest and, and Charles Fairbanks, and, and a lot of it looking at career paths and sort of when somebody is promoted or somebody is eliminated, who goes with them. Um, that is very top-down, obviously, and, and, and you can do that when you have that kind of information, which is mostly from the top looking down. I think it's seen a kind of resurgence exactly because we begin to get access to uh, this kind of documentation, which allows you to get into the weeds of it. It's still, I mean, it's a difficult thing to research, um, especially for earlier periods when you don't have the possibility to do oral histories and to talk to people about it and to figure those sorts of things out. There is a kind of window, I think, in the 1920s and into the 1930s that the documentation is just so detailed and you get, um, and obviously it's, it's incomplete in archival documents and, and biographies and things like autobiographies even are uh, only a, a, a portion, only a sort of a, a window onto something, you know, but um, it, it's extremely rich for this period in the sense that you have all these discussions and arguments and denunciations um, going on, which you which begin to disappear um, from, from the mid-1930s on. And, and, then it, it, and, and why is that, do you well, think? Well, you don't have as open party discussions. Uh, you don't have the, the sort of documentation, the stenograms of all of the, the prenia, right? These discussions that take place uh, after, um, during and after meetings or the reports. And things become much more formulaic, I think, from, from the mid-1930s. Um, it, it does resume a bit in later periods, uh, like from the 1950s. But then you have a, a different kind of formulaic way that archives are put together. And in that case, I think then uh, biographies, autobiographies, and, and even oral history become more important. But another thing I would say about clientelism and, and why it struck me is that 
at just being in the Caucasus and working here, you get a sense of really how central it, it is now. Uh, and it has been for a really long time. I mean, the Caucasus is, has always been the periphery of other people's empires, where the laws and the rules and the enforcement of that belong to somebody else, uh, and they're always sort of unconsolidated. So you need a means to enforce trust, to enforce uh, contracts, to make sure things to get done. Uh, and, and that's you know just a daily part of life. And it's, um, it, it's something that contrasts with the attempts of modernization of the Soviet period and the post-Soviet period too. You know, these ideas about meritocracy and about uh, institutions and about ascribed status and things like that really don't make sense in a culture where there's a moral imperative to break those rules. I mean, nepotism, we, in, in, in a modern sense, uh, nepotism is a bad thing. And in the Caucasus, to not do nepotism is, it means you're a bad person. I mean, it, it is your moral responsibility to help your relative. Um, and the sort of way that things get done. I mean, my, my wife is Georgian. And uh, once during a visit to the US, somebody was telling her about homeschooling. And, and my wife was absolutely shocked and horrified and not because of anything to do with pedagogy or, or theory of education, but the fact that you would deny your child adnoklasniki <laughs> to have co-classmates. I mean, that, that's a vital resource for life that you need. How would you possibly, why would you possibly deny your Right, right, for, for networking and connections and all of these things, right? Mm -hmm. Wow, interesting. Yeah. It, it shapes, shapes how people get things done. It, it shapes how people view the world. And, and when things go wrong, why is that? Who is to blame and you know what, what is going on? Rusana? Oh, since we started talking about clientism in depth, I wanted to follow up with a question. So why did the Bolshevik party had to rely on clientism so heavily in Abkhazia? Yeah, well, I, I think it's part of a larger phenomenon. Uh, and it's one I think that happens everywhere. But it, it is particularly pronounced in the provinces, in the regions, in the periphery. Uh, and I think that is the basic problem that the early Bolsheviks have, that when they come to power, there's, there's very few of them, right? I mean, the party expands dramatically after the revolution and the civil war, but it's still um, a, a tiny compared to the size of the population and the vast distances involved. So how do you get things done? How do you make sure that directives become implemented in this vast expanse? And, and what happens from the very beginning uh, is that people begin to use their informal connections, right? To make the, use the ties that they've made, either through the revolutionary underground or in, in the civil war or, or through whatever networks afterwards. So they, they turn to, uh, on the local level, to people who they know they can rely on uh, to get things done. And those uh, d develops a local sort of networks. And in Bolshevik, early Bolshevik slang, they always refer to this as the, the nest, right? The, the gnizdo. Um, and then eventually those nests become tied in, in sort of virtual lines, which they, they would refer to as a huest, as a tail, that, that tie up into the center. So uh, it's, it's something that happens, I think, all over the place and in the periphery. What makes the national the nationalities question then become important is in a place like Abkhazia is that becomes a criteria for who you recruit and who can be appointed and who you turn to. And then here's where uh, it, it gets interesting for me is, is what is this interaction between that necessity of these informal relations with uh, the results of nationality policies and these very specific decisions that the Bolsheviks take uh, in, in 1921 and 1923 about how they're going to approach nationality, how they're going to use that as an ascribed uh, characteristic uh, for individuals and then for territories. And then that creates a situation where the Bolsheviks themselves have created territories. They have assigned them, ascribed them to particular ethnicities. And then they need to recruit local, locals who are going to be elites, uh, who are going to fulfill that role. So from the point of view of the center, uh, it means they have to pick from different groupings of people, right? Who is going to be my local uh, representative? Uh, and for those 
uh, on the local end, it, it means that there's opportunities if they can present themselves as a cohesive group. Um, and so this creates a situation, and it's, I think it's another uh, thing that reminded me very much of my work in the NGO sector. Um, we have what we call grant capture, where if you're a, if you're a donor, uh, you have a grant to give. You have a lot of power because you can set the requirements, right? What are the application criteria going to be? What are the hoops they're going to have to jump through in order to get the grant? Once you've made your choice, though, all of a sudden that gives a lot of power to the grantee um, because your success as the donor depends on their success in fulfilling that grant. So then they can begin to make requests of you, right? They can say, well, we need more salaries. We need more time. We need more SUVs, whatever that kind of requirement is. And I think there's a very similar situation here. I mean, it's the agent principal problem. You know, once they have selected their titular representative group in any particular territory, uh, that means that that grouping has the ability to uh, uh, extract resources of the center because their success uh, then reflects on the success of the center. Um, but it also uh, sets up the sort of game, which I think is central to, to La Coba and central to what I'm writing about, writing about in the book, is that on the one hand, if you're the local elites, you have to keep your patrons in the center happy. You have to at least minimally fulfill what they need from you. At the same time, you need to keep your constituency satisfied. Um, and you need to prevent a rival elite or a rival grouping elite, and it's never individuals, it's never about individuals, it's about groupings, um, that could potentially replace you. So you need to emphasize your irreplaceability. So that becomes really what the game is about, is demonstrating and maintaining irreplaceability in this, in this situation, in the context of informal politics and Soviet nationality policy, as it existed in, in, the, early, in the 1920s. Let me let me uh, one more question about the development of this this form of governance that clientism did the revolution serve as a break in the sense that clientism wasn't was clientism a form of governance of the of the Russian empire before the revolution um and did the or did the revolution create a break because of the destruction of institutions, the coming to power of new political forces that want to get rid of the old elite and promote their new elite? And then also just because of the war revolution, civil war, you have also the further destruction of any kind of institutional mechanisms of governance. So where, where, how does clientism, like what is the general history of it in terms of governance, in terms of the Russian empire? Mm -hmm. This, this is a really good question because on the one hand, uh, the question is, do places that have, like the Caucasus, that have this culture of, of, uh, of clientelism, does that give them a particular kind of advantage uh, in the Soviet system, um, the fact that they have this? Um, or uh, is this something that was sort of more generally the way the system worked or sort of coincidental? Um, on the one hand, I think you're right that there is a break in institutions of who can potentially become elites and who has the opportunities to do that. And certainly this situation of Soviet nationality policy of needing to recruit titular elites from particular groups. And that had really never existed before. So it gives like a small people like the Abhas, for an example, um, opportunities that they could never have really, really imagined in the previous system. On the other hand, uh, there is, I think, a real continuity of, of assumptions about the way things are done, about how structures uh, should take place. And um, there, I think there's, in, in some cases, a even a subconscious attempt to recreate the institutions that existed before, sort of what Ilya Gerasimov calls the, the imperial imaginary, like sort of recreating the structures that they remember from, from the Tsarist time or the way that things were done, and that's how they understood that they should be, but kind of in a new way, 
you know, and I think that, for example, uh, Urjuna Kidze, who becomes the head of the Transcaucasus and, and the way that he creates the Transcaucasian Federation, um, I, I think is, is he is recreating the viceroyalty of the Caucasus as he knew it. Only it's now a Bolshevik one with with him as the viceroy, uh, and I think that's happening too at the local level. Say with with the Abhas that they uh, are coming to power. They see these opportunities and they're the same kinds of opportunities that uh, in the Tsarist period other people used, and now they come to power and they sort of assume that they should get the same kind of privileges that previous elites had as well, which creates some of the conflicts that come up. Right, the sense that uh, despite being Bolsheviks, they think, well, now we should have big houses and now we should marry the, the daughters of, of aristocrats and you know we should live like the princes <laughs> did before. I'm curious to know more about the main protagonist of your book, if I may call him so. Uh, who was Nestor Lakoba and why should we care to learn about him? But mm-hmm. well, Nestor Lakoba is a, a very colorful figure. And I should say that uh, in, in writing this book, I was trying not so much to write a biography as, if anything, a, a network biography. Uh, but clearly, Lakoba is the central figure of that of that network, uh, and inevitably of the book as well. And, and Lakoba is uh, was an was a revolutionary. He had also gone to the Tiflis Seminary, like Stalin. Uh, he uh, knew absolutely everyone. He was remarkably well connected, um, and also somebody who seems to have been really charismatic and people like uh, Trotsky and Nadezhda Mandelstam write very favorably about him later he was um he was the the boss in Abkhazia he was not the party boss um which becomes an interesting uh, or or an important thing later on he was the head of Sovnarkom of the um the, the council of soviet uh, the, rather the, the council of commissars um, sort of the the cabinet of ministers, uh, as it would later later be called. So the head of government, um, he is a member of the party, and he is a member of the Georgian Central Committee. Um, there are ten different first party secretaries in the Abkhazia and Obkom between 1921 and 1930. Um, finally, in 1930, Lakoba is able to get his own guy. All of those ten previous people had never; none of them were Abkhaz. Um, all of them were Armenians and Russians and Georgians and other things. By about 1930, he gets his own guy, his Abhaz guy, who uh, stays there till 1936, and that sort of calms that situation. Lakoba is able to consolidate that situation. Um, but uh, his, his power really is in the government institutions, and I think that that has something to do with um, the structure of nationality policy as well in the 1920s, that it was much easier to get control as the titular elite of government institutions than the party. The party was always more centralized. Um, he, though, is the boss, uh, and in some ways, he is a sort of typical early Soviet and even Stalinist uh, leader. You know, he, he is ruthless. Uh, he uh, knows what he wants. Uh, he maintains power at all costs. Uh, on the other hand, he does seem to be kind of different from the stereotypical early Soviet leaders, and particularly of the Stalinist type. He was small, quiet. He had a, uh, a hearing impairment. He wore, uh, he used a a hearing aid, and in some of the pictures in the Lakoba archive, you see this thing, and he's often or sometimes uh, mislabeled as a radio operator because this thing is a, an enormous box with headphones. It really looks like an early kind of radio. Um, but he was known for, you know, not for for shouting and swearing and, and things like that, but for being more cultured. He liked to use these pithy Abkhazian sayings uh, and sort of being more enchanting. There, there's a really good portrayal of him in a, a film that was made about the Stalin period in, 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 uh, in the very late Soviet period. I think it was made in 1989 or 1990, um, a film called uh, which is about a visit to Stal- by Stalin to a dacha in Gagra in Abkhazia in, in, uh, around 1936, um, and which sort of portrays this, this figure of Lakoba and he, uh, as this, again, small, quiet, but refined uh, sort of party leader. 
he also gets really mythologized, I think, and especially from the Abha's point of view. He's, he's sort of seen as their George Washington kind of figure who can do no wrong, friend to children, um, you know, all, all, all of these sort of things. And that also gets portrayed in the, the works of Fazal Eskander, who is a, probably the, the best known uh, Abha's, Abha's writer who also sort of creates this portrait. Actually, that film uh, was, was based on the novel Sandro is Chigem from, uh, by, by Fazal Iskander. But again, I think the main point is that he is uh, able to make use of this patronage opportunities in Abkhazia. The fact that, first of all, it's a major producer of tobacco in the early period. By the Second World War, it's one of the largest places for the production of tobacco in the Soviet Union. Uh, and also that it is becoming this resort place and a resort place for the elite. Yeah, talk about this this role of Abkhazia, both as this interesting resort place where the Soviet elite comes to, you know, for a couple of months at a time a year. You know, Stalin famously spent a lot of time there, uh, and it as this tobacco region having this important uh, economic commodity. Uh, what 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 role did Abkhazia talk about this dual role that it plays, both in terms of political and economics? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so Abkhazia had been kind of a malarial swamp um, up to the turn of the century. They began draining the swamps. In, there were large investments from Greek and Armenian uh, merchants in, in tobacco production, even in the Tsarist period. Um, and uh, so it becomes this major center for tobacco production. Uh, but then uh, it begins. It becomes this place for elite sanatoria and, uh, and a place uh, for restoration of health, as we've seen. And, and it very much was elite. And you know, they uh, people like uh, Trotsky uh, stayed there for a long time in the early 1920s. Uh, almost everybody actually was sent there at one point or another. Um, and uh, it's only gradually uh, by the uh, really by the 1930s, with the beginning of collectivization and centralization, that uh, things begin to shift away from tobacco and towards tea and citrus fruit. Uh, and only after the war that this focus on elite. Um, as a place for elite resorts changes and it becomes uh, a more popular place. And that's where they build you know, the, the large sanatoria for the, for the working man you know, and where it becomes a place of, of mass tourism. Although uh, Khrushchev builds a dacha there and later Gorbachev builds a dacha there, it still continues to be a place where, where elites go. One of the things I find fascinating about it is because power in the Soviet Union is so concentrated around Moscow right? It, it all kind of flows towards this central, particularly around a figure like Stalin. But him having this kind of second base of operations provides incredible opportunity for people like Lakoba, who are in the periphery, but now are now have personal connections. How important was this to Lakoba's power and, and patronage in, in Abkhazia and the wider Soviet Union? Well, I think it's part of the larger story of, of the rise of the Caucasian network, which is broader than just Abkhazia, and Lakoba becomes an important intermediary figure that, in that. Um, so you have this situation where, uh, again, it gets back to this question of, are, are Caucasians better at clientelism? Um, but they, they certainly are very widespread in the, in the revolutionary movement, in the, the Menshevik and, and even the Bolshevik movement, uh, and uh, with the ascension of, of Ojanakidze and the people around him, you have this very powerful Caucasian group. Um, the, the book by Eric Scott on familiar strangers, I think is very strong. Uh, it's demonstrating this political ascendancy of, of Caucasians, uh, and especially in the Stalin era and beginning uh, from the 1920s. Um, so it creates this very powerful network, which is very important in the rise of Stalin. It's not the only factor, obviously, um, but it's an important element uh, of Stalin's rise to power. Uh, and Lakoba is a central kind of intermediary uh, in, in that. 
I'm Sean Gillery, the host of the SRB Podcast, a podcast about all things Russian. Back in 2020, I was contacted by a Ukrainian historian, Edward Andrushenko. Edward had discovered a 50-year-old KGB file on an American tourist named Teddy Rowe. When I tracked Teddy down, I expected wild tales of Cold War espionage. What I got instead was a story of a curious young Montanan and insights into the relationship between the Soviet and American people. Teddy Goes to the USSR is a six-part podcast series about that relationship, one that is shaped by mutual propaganda on racism. You know, if there's a lynching episode in the United States, they are all out there on Radio Moscow. Here they are telling you that they're the leaders of democracy. And yet, look at this horrific violence. Consumerism. A lot of the language to discuss Soviet shops is really caustic kind of uses very, very strong adjectives. Pathetic and ridiculous. Unlikely friendships. One of the greatest strokes of luck on my Soviet trip was meeting Lev. I will never know whether he appeared in a seat beside me by accident or whether he was placed there. But he was always the consummate gentleman. And of course, the KGB. When I left my suitcase, I placed that thread or a couple of them in strategic spots. And when it was disturbed, invariably, every time I came back, I knew that I was being watched. So subscribe and listen to Teddy Goes to the USSR, a six-episode series on Soviet life through an American tourist's eyes, wherever you listen to podcasts. Talk about the relationship to the role of nationality in clientism in Abkhazia, because it's a famously, the whole region, but also Abkhazia is famously ethnically diverse, linguistically diverse. So, you know, how does this work with nationality policy? Yeah, so Abkhazia is incredibly diverse. And what's interesting as well is that the Abkhaz are are not even a plurality, let alone a majority. Um, in in the in Abkhazia, um, Abkhazia gets created as uh, as a as a republic after Sovietization, after the Soviet conquest of the Caucasus, and it exists for an entire year uh, as as a as a Soviet republic, the Abkhaz Soviet Republic, in the same way that there's the Russian Soviet Republic, there's the Abkhaz Soviet Republic. Um, then in in 1922, it it gets incorporated. Uh, and this is where things get a little bit complicated because in the Caucasus, there's the whole question of should there be individual republics of Armenia, Azerbaijan, and Georgia, or should there be a federation? Um, and so uh, Abkhazia is enters the Transcaucasian Federation, which is created in 1922 through Georgia, and it has this particular status as a Sayuzna, as a Dogovernaya Respublika, as, as a treaty republic, which is, as far as I can see, unique. There's no other situation like that. Uh, and this would create a lot of the messiness later on, and even up till today, of defining, you know, what was it? Should it have been a Soviet republic, um, which it existed for this one year, although it wasn't a union republic, obviously, because there was no union until 1923. Um, and what does this change of status mean? Um, by 1931, that status gets re- reduced to an, an autonomous republic within Georgia, um, which is kind of more standard and usual, but it's clearly seen uh, as a step down. Um, but this complexity of status uh, on the one hand, it gives a lot of opportunity 
because they are able to play the different levels of federation off against one another. And I think that's particularly important in the tobacco trade, where they're able to play the different purchasing organizations of the Transcaucasian Federation against the all-union one, against the Georgian one, and get higher prices um, from what from from whichever. Uh, the other element here, though, is, again, because they have been selected as the, the representative titular ethnicity, that means that even though they're a minority in their, in their own republic, that they have this appeal, that they have this status, and that they are in this position. And it's a particularity, too, of, of nationality policy as it exists in the early Soviet period, from the 1920s up until the mid-1930s when they're able to play this card to its strongest effect. So this the fact that they have assigned both territory to ethnicity and individual identity or ascribed territory and identity to uh, nationality makes that an important factor. It makes it real in, in the same way that by deciding uh, who gets what based on class makes class real, right? It reifies the conception of class here to nationality. Uh, it becomes reified. It's not an abstract concept. Um, what opportunities you get, what, uh, what, um, uh, allocations are made actually depend on it, so it becomes a real thing. And this is obviously a, you know, a result of early Soviet nationality policy that they have specifically decided that they're going to approach nationality in this way, right? Beginning from the sort of Bolshevik idea that now that a revolution has happened and we are moving from bourgeois capitalism to socialism, uh, nationalism is a uh, is a anachronism of the past and will simply disappear. And then, of course, realizing in the in the context of of the civil war, particularly in Ukraine, that uh, this is not going to go away. That we're going to need to deal with this. Uh, and making these concessions is uh, a way that they think they can depoliticize nationalism. Right? That they're going to try to take those things that nationalists aspire to. You know, things like the form of a territory, uh, things like uh, opportunities, you know, who, you know who, who are the elites, who are the leadership positions, and also cultural things. All those things that they define as form. And we're going to give those to the nationalities. And in the early Soviet period, this, what's been called this period of ethnophilia, right? The, even the smallest nationalities will, will get these kinds of privileges. Um, but of course, they're of different sizes. All of these ethnicities are, you know, they're, the territories, the populations are different. Um, and the, the actual structures that they receive are different. So the big ones get union republics, the smaller ones get autonomous republics or autonomous oblasts, and within that you have autonomous districts. So it, it ends up creating this kind of a, a hierarchy where everybody understands that this is a hierarchy and that we are in competition for position and that your status uh, reflects those privileges and opportunities that are, are ascribed to you. Um, so ultimately, it, it has the ultimate, the, the opposite result from what they're aspiring to. Instead of depoliticizing nationalism, it, it ends up politicizing those indicators of your status in that hierarchy. So I think this is why, uh, if you look at the polemics, say, of the later Soviet period, when they're arguing about, you know, they have six dance ensembles and we have three. They have a TV tower. We don't have a TV tower. They have four newspapers. Why are they arguing about dance ensembles? Well, it's exactly because that is an indicator of their status. And change of that status means <laughs> means a, a real results in in uh, in allocations and opportunities and so forth. Yeah. So I actually, yeah, I have a question about the nationality policy. Specifically, I'm interested in this passage you write in the book that uh, one of the reasons the Bolshevik failed to establish their power in Abkhazia at first was that there was no ethnic element. And um, I wonder how did they go about solving this problem? 
And you just, you, you also, and I guess like a related question would be something you just mentioned that for some reason they chose uh, a group that was a minority in the region to be a titular nation. And I'm just really curious about why they made that move and what kind of advantages it presented for them, because it seems counterintuitive. Yeah, I think that passage refers in particular to the first attempt of the Bolsheviks to uh, install Soviet power in Abkhazia, which is in 1918. And, and they create what's later called in historiography the Suhum Commune, sort of like the Baku Commune. They take the same kind of name of it. Um, and that, that actual statement is, is, I think, made by one of the leaders of this, of this attempted uh, creation of Soviet power. It lasted only 42 days. And I think what he's exactly saying is that we need this kind of nationality policy. The, the, one of the reasons we failed is that we were unable to unify, we were unable to present this uh, in a way that's understandable to that ethnic group which is, which is supporting us most. And this is, this is why they took this decision, to name Abkhazia, to have the Abkhaz be the titular nationality, despite the fact that they're not even a plurality. In it. it was that ethnic group of, and Abkhaz, I should point out, are they're primarily Highlanders. Uh, they are mostly up in the villages. They, they are not a dominant population in the capital of Suhum in Abkhazia. Um, but they were the most supportive of the Bolsheviks, um, this in part because of, of Lakoba and his agitation. Um, and so this was one of those sort of divide and rule questions of um, why you know, we select these people are going to be uh, representative because I think in part it was a restraint on the Georgian Republic. In part, I think it had to do with the larger um, policy of appealing to the, Soviet, to the, to the East. So this is an, an example of, of uh, you know, empowering a small, partially Muslim population. And, part, and Abkhazi, um, Lakoba's assignments in this period reflect that as well, that he's sent, um, and some of the other Abkhaz elites are sent uh, as delegates to Ataturk in Turkey. Um, and uh, they are also sent as representatives to the, uh, this conference that takes place in Baku in 1920 of the, of the Muslim toilers of the East. So I think it, it has both of those, uh, those, those kind of regions of why, why select the Abhaz as, as the titular nationality. Uh, let's, let's go back to Lakoba and his, and his um, political career in life. You know, he, you know, one of the things about clientism is that you can rise, but you also fall with with your with your group right and lakoba and his people throughout the 20s and into of course the 30s they're subject to all sorts of investigations and inquiry into how they're doing things in abkhazia what are some of the these significant what are some of the significant moments in these investigations that uh and how did lakoba like navigate to remain in power yeah, so this is this is why the the subtitle of the book is the trials of Nestor Lakoba, and um, this is proving to be kind of difficult for translating the book to Georgian or to Russian because you know we, we in, in English it has this dual meaning of, of a trial as like a, a, a as a court trial, but also trial as in a, a an ordeal. Um, and in the case of Lakoba in the twenties and the nineteen thirties, we have both of those. There are challenges to his leadership that take place, and there are actually court trials and then tribunals, and then the ultimate trial is the uh, the Stalinist show trial that takes place in 1937 after Lakoba himself has already has already gone, but ultimately ends up removing his entire network. So the course of these tribulations and trials are exactly showing these ways in which Lakoba and his group are are struggling with the challenges of 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 clientelism. I mean, on the one hand, you have 
one case which a, a chapter that I've called the Rift Revolt, um, which the actual participants describe as the Rift Revolt. Uh, and this was uh, in the papers of the 1920s, there was uh, a lot of attention to North Africa. So the Rift War was a colonial war in French and, and Spanish North Africa. So they, they refer to this revolt by Abkhaz elites against Lakoba by, by that title. And sort of what happens, and this reflects one of the challenges that a local elite has, is that who do you choose on the local level? Who are you going to be your people? And uh, the temptation is, you know, the people who are closely related to you from your village, the people you trust, your relatives. And Lakoba does that a lot. And and some of these people are 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 kind of scary. And and his uh, his brother Misha or half brother Misha, I think, is the best representative of that. He's really kind of a thug. Uh, he he seems to take a particular. Um, pleasure in, in extrajudicial executions and staging uh, escapes. Um, he, there are a lot of uh, people around him who get involved in these kind of scandals about bribe kidnapping. And, and uh, Michel Lacoba at one point has slaves, um, sort of indentured people who end up working for him. Uh, and that really annoys the other elites who are competent. Most of them are actually in positions of, of being commissars. Uh, but they are really annoyed by uh, the style of leadership of Lakoba um, by uh, these people around him, by the fact that uh, you know he at one point he sort of says in in the Tsarist time there was one Nachalnik and that's how it should be now. And there's a, this great scene uh, that takes place in the apartment of his deputy, in which they confront him, and it ends up with Lakoba and his deputy trying to strangle each other. Um, but basically, what this is, I think, is the attempt by those other elites with encouragement by some people from outside and coming, I think, from, from some of the rival factions in the Georgian leadership uh, to create exactly this alternate grouping, uh, a potential alternate elite that, that, can, dis, that can remove Lakoba and replace him. Uh, and Lakoba, in that case, is able to make use of his, his, the power of his patrons in the center in Tiflis, especially to to, to block that and to present to prevent that, so that that's one kind of challenge. Another chapter is is a really perhaps overly detailed chapter about this region that's called Sabelda uh, in in Abkhazia, which is an Armenian district. It's one that becomes really scandalous because ultimately the level of corruption is so great that there is a show trial that takes place there as well. Um, but that is an Armenian populated region, one that is a major tobacco producing region, um, and exactly because there was this major scandal, uh, we sort of see the inner workings of of the tobacco trade and what's what's going on there, uh, the ways in which in the 1920s they're able to, um, the local family, um, the local Armenian family is able to, which had been dominant in the Tsarist period, is able to retake over uh, again in the Soviet period to get over, to take over positions within the local power, within the local, within the local party rather, within the, uh, within the, um, um, the trade cooperatives and especially the position of tobacco sorter, which is incredibly important because that, you can determine how much money peasants should get for different the tobacco that they bring in. So they have this elaborate scheme worked out for uh, giving the lowest possible price to the peasant. Uh, and then when they walk out, one brother who is the sorter will give the lowest price to the peasant. When the peasant walks out of the building angry, another brother will come up and offer him a, a double the price. Uh, and then they can sell it to the state for, for triple or quadruple the price. So these this kinds of mass machinations and all of the things that go on uh, to protect that racket which it really is a racket, which it sounds more like the Lichy Divanosti, right, of the crazy 1990s than it does uh, the Soviet period. And there's all sorts of cases of kidnappings and arson and murder uh, and things uh, involved with that. And all of that ultimately is really tied in with 
with the center in Sukhum and Lakoba's leadership. And one of the more interesting documents from the Lakoba collection is um, is a letter written on the back of an envelope in an almost illegible and almost illiterate hand by one of the capellones of this family, uh, appealing directly to Lakoba and saying, you know, you know me, I'm in this trouble. <laughs> you really have to help me. I, I'm about to get excluded from the party. So it really, I think, demonstrates that this isn't just a, a, a regional thing happening, that this is really tied into into the leadership and creates opportunities, but also creates a kind of vulnerability when investigations begin. Uh, and by the late 1920s, there are more and more of these, these kind of investigations that, that take place in reports and, and denunciations. And part of it is from dissatisfied clients, ex-clients, people who are excluded from access to those clientelistic networks. Um, and all of this criminality and all of this racketeering creates uh, vulnerabilities that, that can become part of these denunciations. And the most serious of those trials is sort of the culmination of this, um, this investigation coming from, from the center, uh, from the, the uh, Central Investigating Commission, which gets so many reports that an investigator is so appalled by this that he actually comes to Abhazia to look at what's going on. And you have to think that a, uh, an official of, these, uh, of, of the party inspectorate, basically, the Erkeyitsakaka, you know, they've seen everything. You know, they've seen corruption of all sorts. And they're just horrified by what they see going on in Abkhazia, and they come to investigate this. If you look at his career, I mean, like a lot of these figures, particularly in the, of the Stalinist type, um, they're survivors until they're not. And so what leads, you know, he, he successfully kind of deflects and maneuvers throughout the 20s and into the 30s, all of these investigations and, you know, trials, both in terms of court and also of life. So what leads to his downfall? How does he get taken out eventually? Yeah. Well, what allows him time after time in the 1920s and into the early 1930s is to, to protect himself and to survive is exactly the support of his patrons in the center and his ability to demonstrate that it's harder to replace him than, than it is to keep him in place. And, and that's the culmination of this central investigation in, in 1929, the, this, an intervention by Stalin himself in this letter from Stalin, which says essentially that, that there are some things that Lakoba does which are nipa bolshevitsky, right? They're not proper Bolshevik things. But Stalin actually says, it's not as easy to replace Lakoba as you think it is. These other guys you think can replace him, they're not possibility. So we have to stay with Lakoba. And, and that's what that's what keeps him in place for that, uh, in, in that situation. And what changes, I think, is that uh, the changes more generally in, in Soviet politics uh, that are taking place by the late, late 1920s, the increasing centralization with, uh, with, with collectivization, with industrialization, those are uh, undermining the previous abilities to do machinations with tobacco that you could do under the new economic policy. Uh, with collectivization, that, that becomes impossible, and, and even more, the impetus for collectivization begins to threaten uh, Lakoba's peasant constituency, which is a big problem for him, and there are uprisings that he himself has to negotiate. Uh, is part of the mythology of, of Lakoba that supposedly he was able to use his connections with Stalin to cancel collectivization in Abkhazia. And I argue in the book that that's not entirely true, that actually it resumes. It's a, a, temporary, a temporary pause, but that's not so unusual. Um, you also, I think you have... Um, you have the change in, in nationality policy that's beginning in, the, in by the mid-1930s, this shift away from this ethnophilia and supporting every small nationality to an emphasis on the, on the larger uh, republics. And here, particularly, the, the importance of Georgia um, is, is key. That, and, and part of that has to do with, with Stalin and the importance of Georgians you know, in the Soviet leadership that 
by the late 1930s, this emphasis uh, and the power really gets gets switched to the Georgian Republic uh, at the expense of of its uh, of its territories. And the third factor here is is the change in in clientelist politics that's taking place in the Transcaucasus uh, with the the rise of Beria and this replacement by Beria um, with his cohort of um, clients, mainly coming from the secret police, that displace the old party leadership. Um, of the Orjana Kidze network, which had come from, uh, you know, the, the underground revolutionary movement, a very different generation, different cohorts, different outlooks, um, and that replacement. Um, Lakoba makes use of that, and, and I think there are, uh, I know there are documents in the Lakoba archive which clearly demonstrate the, how important a role Lakoba had in in, in Beria coming to power. And there's uh, this uh, letters in which Lakoba is explaining to Beria how he told Stalin that Beria is the guy who should be appointed as, as head of the Transcaucasus party. He's the guy who, who can get things done. Um, and I think Lakoba has this idea that La, that Beria is going to be the kind of patron that Orjan Akidze and the previous Georgian leadership had been. Um, but of course, things are shifting in that regard by the 1930s as well. Um, the approach to patronage, um, the the approach of the center towards uh, all of these gnozda, right, all of these nests, um, part of that, I think, is is moving towards the, the purges and the terror. And, and I think one of the main reasons, not not obviously not the only reason, uh, but a reason for the purges is exactly to get rid of these local power centers, what Stalin refers to as these grupirovki or simiestva, that he wants exactly to destroy that. And, and I mean, you can look at this as a, as a uh, an, uh, through the personality element of this conflict between Beria and Lakoba that develops. But I think it's more generally, Beria fulfills his tasks, and that's what Beria is good at, and that's what he's trying to do in the 1930s is to demonstrate his effectiveness to Stalin. And part of that effectiveness is being absolutely ruthless and destroying local uh, centers of power, and that's exactly what he does in Abkhazia ultimately. Yeah, that, that's what's really fascinating about the the Stalin forms of governance because on the one hand they rely heavily you know Stalin relies heavily on these patron client networks to govern the country but by the late 1930s particularly as they see war coming on the horizon they just he just throws down the gauntlet and try and decides to clean them out just even though you know it doesn't because old you know other subordinate groups and clans replace the you know the ones in power and it just gets a new a new mixture of groups but um Given that, I, I'm curious how looking at clientism in a place like Abkhazia, how that shapes your understanding of Stalinism as a particular phenomenon in the Soviet Union. Yep. Well, I think you do have to look at Stalinism as, as something that's fluid and something that does change over time. And the way that clientelism functions, you're right, is, is one that changes in that period. And you have this shift um, with, with the purges and into the war and, and the years after the war from uh, this kind of local to center, uh, local to vertical networks um, on the regional level to a kind of clientelism which is much more centralized and a kind of clientelism uh, in which the, the, um, the advantage goes to those who are able to combine different kinds of, of patronage. So and this is one of the reasons why Beria becomes powerful, and one of the reasons, say, Khrushchev also um, becomes becomes important, that they are able to combine these uh, different elements of networks into something that's sort of a super a super network, if you will. So, so Beria's ability to combine his his influence in the Transcaucasus with his secret police network, and then with his uh, his um, 
his networks within the industrial military industrial complex or or uh, Khrushchev's ability to combine his networks in the Moscow City organization with the Ukrainian party organization in the Ukrainian front of the military sort of to create these super networks which by the later Stalin period are how the Stalinist system functions it's these you know sort of conglomerates of, of networks that are able to accomplish all of the tasks that Stalin needs to be done uh, in the war and afterwards and finally what are some of the legacies of this? I mean, you just you mentioned at the very beginning about how you know your wife's reaction to denying your child the opportunities of networking in school. Um, you know, how does this the, the legacies of this in, in Abkhazia's recent history? You know, here you have, of course, the the tensions, uh, the war in nineteen ninety two. You have the the tensions with Georgia, the fact that Russia recognizes it as a as an independent um, republic of sorts. How does this all fit together to Abkhazia's problems and issues today? So on the one hand, I, I think the very fact that politics became ethnicized because this central aspect of how networks are formed becomes built based on ethnicity, so that it becomes seen not as a political conflict, say, between Beria, the Beria group and the Lakobo group, which which it was, in, in fact. And you know, part of what Beria did in coming to power was to destroy the previous Georgian elite as well. So, but but in in retrospect and in the later interpretations in historiography from the Abhas point of view, this is what they did to us. This is they refer to it as the Beria of Shrina, right? This is how Beria came and destroyed us. Um, I think later then, um, as a result of nationality policy, as a result of again this ascribed ethnicity both to the individual and to the territory, it, it's a it's a kind of zero sum situation. That you can't be two things. You know, there are there are some exceptions of republics that are not based on ethnicity, like Dagestan or the Jewish Republic and things like that. But for the most part, they're based on one ethnicity to one territory. Um, and sometimes they're put together, like the Chechen English Republic or Kabardina Balkaria. But even in those cases, there's one part that's Kabardina, there's one part that's Balkarian, right? You know that there is a territory. You can't share it. It can't be one or the other. So it, it creates this this sense that uh, a territory is zero sum. It's ours or theirs. Um, and the same with 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 identity, right? That you know people become expert at manipulating that or, or changing their nationality to what can be more important. And there's some room for maneuver there. But ultimately, you have to be one or the other. You can't be both things. And I think that instead of uh, making nationalism disappear, it really uh, reifies it and, and essentializes it in, in people's conception, right? That it makes being uh, a particular ethnicity something unchangeable, this conception. It really it reinforces this idea of primordialism. It becomes an obsession in the later Soviet period of, of ethnogenesis, of defining um, ethnicity as almost like geography of you know, the, the layers of rock in a cliff and that's unchanging and that, that's kind of uh, eternal. Um, in the in the later Soviet period, after the Stalinist uh, period, you have a, a lot of freedom, especially in the Caucasus, but in in the periphery, to explore these ideas of ethnogenesis and of self definition, and doing that in official institutions. And you know, all of these institutes paid for by the party and the state. You know, the the unions of writers, the the institutes of history, the institute of archaeology, the institute of literature, uh, and mining ancient history, archaeology for these purposes of ethnogenesis. I think it's one of those cases where people are using the formal institutions of the Soviet state, but reorienting them for their own needs and really returning to those nationalist agendas that you know the nationalists of the 19th century had sort of left off with then. And in cases where you have competition over territories, 
like you do here in Georgia with Abkhazia, also with Ossetia, the same situation in Armenia and Azerbaijan over Karabakh and Nachivan, um, these institutions become dedicated in their pursuit of ethnogenesis to defining territories and defining why those territories are ours and not theirs. And they, they develop these theories you know, about why they're theirs and, and, and not, why they're ours and not theirs. Um, and I think here in, in the case of Abkhazia, um, the, there's the Georgian theory, um, which is called the Ingarokva theory, which basically is that those people who are uh, call themselves Abkhaz now are recent arrivals from the mountains. They just came down in the last 200 years and that they, the Abkhaz and the medieval chronicles who, you know, who are the real Abkhaz, that they are actually Georgian. So that land is ours and not theirs. And part of the, part of the, Abkhazian response to that is exactly this Lakoba period, is the 1920s and the 1930s when we were in charge and when it was the golden era. It was sort of like Eden from which we were expelled by by Barry and these evil Georgians, like the Akkadia. This. And that, I think, gets into why uh, Lakoba is portrayed in, in Abkhazia and the modern Abkhazian understanding as uh, as this kind of myth- mythicized, myth- mythicized figure and why the Abkhazia of that period is seen in that way. And this is what they did to us. And it's part of their narrative of of you know what what we have suffered, uh, given this uh, this situation, given the oppressive nature of what we've been put together with in the Georgians in one republic, um, and is this why they look to Mo- there's this this move to look to Moscow as patrons of Abkhazia even you know today? Yeah, and that that's not just now. It's it goes back uh, to the Lakoba period. It's always been a trilateral relationship of playing Moscow to Vlisi off against each other, um, and that continues uh, in this period too, in the 60s and 70s and 80s. That they're always appearing appealing to Moscow to put brakes on um, on these these Georgian nationalism, um, and and that's the reason too why. Uh, why the conflict breaks out when things begin to shake because they begin to have the, the threat of losing that uh, that appeal. You know, now we're no longer in a trilateral situation where we can play Moscow off Tbilisi. Now we're going to be stuck in a separate country together with Georgians and nobody uh, outside to appeal to. Um, you, you also you you hear a lot of rhetoric um, even now in in Georgia in in Armenia and Azerbaijan. You hear this a lot too about why. Soviet nationality policy happened, why these decisions about territory were made in the early Soviet period, that this specifically was, uh, the word they often use is a, is a time bomb, that these territories were placed here so that at some point in the future, when we as republics pursue our national independence, they from the center, they can explode this and this will blow up our, our project. Um, but clearly, there is an element of divide and rule of why they decide to assign territories in the way they did. And that, that's beyond dispute that there was that element to it. Um, it seems to me that this, this time bomb argument is, is unrealistic in the sense, first of all, that I don't think the Bolsheviks were thinking that far ahead or sort of that, that insidious uh, to predict that. But I mean, their view of why they are doing this, of why they're pursuing this national, nationalities policy uh, is because they think in the future nationalism will disappear. They really think that they are addressing those animosities, that by doing making these concessions, giving these opportunities, that those tensions, those, those ethnic hatreds and things will actually disappear in the future. And the future is not one of republics seeking their own independence, but is something different, is as they call it, right? It's a sort of unification and Druzhba Narodov, and those things will, uh, will in, the, in the future disappear. I think if there is a time bomb, it, it's not the ethno-federal hierarchy that they create specifically, or this creating time bombs out of, uh, out of autonomous republics, but it is exactly the primordialist, essentialist conception of national identity that nationality policy engenders. And this zero-sum nature of how people come to understand both individual identity and, and who territory belongs to. That was Timothy Blauvelt. 
Timothy Blauveld is professor of Soviet and post-Soviet studies at Elia State University in Tbilisi, Georgia, and regional director for the South Caucasus for American Councils for International Education. His newest book is Clientism and Nationality in an Early Soviet Fiefdom, The Trials of Nestor Lakoba, published by Rutledge. All right. Well, thank you very much, Rusana. I thought we'd start by, um, I thought I'd throw out uh, a kind of topic for us to discuss. And that is, you know, about the the whole idea of patron-client, patronism and client relationships that you find you know, in places like the South Caucasus or even in the Soviet Union and as a form of governance. And one of the things that struck me is, you know, the problem of often patrimonialism is put in tension to with modern forms of governance that are, you know, supposed to be based on law and norms and meritocracy and all these things. And I can't help wonder if, you know, first off, this is a wrong binary. Um, because it's involved with hierarchies and judgments of modern and traditional. But it also, I think, elides the fact that I think patrimonialism is just kind of the way the world works in some places more than others, but just it, patrons and clients kind of are the way things are done in politics, in employment, and other aspects of life. So I, I was curious what you thought about, about those that issue of, of the whole concept of it. Oh, definitely. Uh, I mean, even in academia, you think, you know, it's all based all the grants and employment and getting into PhD programs. It's based on meritocracy, on how smart you are, how well educated you are. But in fact, um, your advisor and, you know, your recommenders, they do play a huge role in what money pockets you can get into and what other perks you get. Uh, and that's just how things are, fortunately or unfortunately. Um, so I would agree that it's very, very present in our quote unquote modern society. And then another thing that I wanted to say is that this whole division between traditional and modern is a really big topic in anthropology. Um, because it's very controversial, right? I think our discipline started from the point that there were traditional societies and we go and study them. These ethnographers travel to faraway places, find some kind of tribe that still live the way we used to live, right? Um, but then gradually, <laughs> we um, came to realize that this division is very erroneous because it denies coevalness to the people who live today with us in the same time and space. And so how do we how do we reconcile these two things, right? On the other hand, we do recognize that there are certain um that there were certain structures, certain um arrangements like um I don't know, kinship systems or the way you procure and distribute food, um, certain economic systems, right, that f that fell into the void, that are no more, that we don't have, we, that are no more, right? On the other hand, um, on the other hand, how do we deal with the fact that certain people say who are hunter-gatherers today being called traditional even though they are 
they live they live with us in the same in the same year 2022 they go through the same um they go through the same um hardships through the same like global events that we do like covid touched everybody right uh climate change etc cetera, etc cetera. so that's why this division is really problematic yeah you know i i think of the i remember seeing some sort of image of one of these at interesting contrast like what do you do with the so-called hunter gatherer wearing a coca wearing a coca-cola t-shirt <laughs> or a michael jordan jersey or something like this like there's you know there's these weird like clashes like you know things different things that we attribute traditional modern whatever coming together and existing in the same place space and and this and this goes to my other problem that I'm trying to work through because, you know, I think like the analysis that Timothy has done about Abkhazia is really great, and a lot of the a lot of the historical work now being done more and more on Stalinism is looking at the role of patron client networks um, and how that worked with informal politics, and and that goes throughout the Soviet system. So on on the one hand, I'm incredibly in favor and find this type of analysis very interesting and illuminating. But on the other hand, I'm also very kind of uncomfortable, I think, with a lot of times that comes with a with an othering, because embedded in this idea that, you know, uh, informal politics, right? Informal politics suggests that there's a formal politics <laughs> that is somehow better, quote unquote. So, you know, I don't want to, and the other thing too is like, for example, I can't, and this is a contrast to that, this is to illuminate that otherness thing. I find it hard for, if somebody went and said, I'm going to understand the politics of Germany today through patron clients, that would sound weird. Whereas if, is, whereas if somebody and people are saying, I'm going to analyze, you know, uh, Uzbek politics or uh, say nothing of the caucuses in terms of patron clients or clans or something like this, it would be on the surface reasonable and legitimate. And so I think there is an otherness that is unconsciously embedded in the analysis that I, I can't really reconcile myself to. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Otherness and implicit hierarchy, even if you're not, even if you're not calling it by its name, <laughs> um, the hierarchy is there, you know, when you call someone traditional, you're one step away from calling them backward or um, developing or <laughs> while we are progressive, right? We're at the front line. So it could be a vertical hierarchy, could be like an arrow and everyone is like, gets a spot <laughs> on, on this train. And ultimately this idea, right? Uh, they go. This goes back to something you said earlier that you know, our system is flawless. It's based on law. It's based on order. It's based on meritocracy. This doesn't really work. This is an image that we've created of ourselves that is not that just not true, right? Um, Latour wrote this book called We've Never Been Modern, meaning that 
you know, all these things that we call traditional and we kind of say, oh, we set them aside, they're in the past, they're still present. We just choose not to recognize them in order to differentiate ourselves from the others who do have them, right? Like I said, I this brings up all sorts of, you know, interesting problems of how you describe other societies that may even, you know, in this case, I'm not trying to say that the, the society I live in, in, you know, Pittsburgh, United, Pennsylvania, United States, is the same as it is in Abkhazia um, in any historical period. Um, however, you know, I don't want to, the, the problem of, again, of othering and things like this is, you know, can be problematic. Um, so, but anyways, thank you very much for your, for your comments. Uh, I'm your host, Sean Guillory. And as you know, I'm joined by Rusana Novikova. Uh, this is the SRV podcast, and we're sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh, and listeners like you. If you like this podcast, please help us out. Share it on social media. Write a review, actually, on iTunes or whatever podcast platform you get your podcast from. That That is incredibly helpful. Also, tell all your friends and family, you know, if they're interested in such things, have them listen. And always drop us a line on Facebook or Twitter or at srbpodcast.org and let us know what you think. And as always, we at the SRB Podcast would love to have your support. This is a nonprofit educational endeavor, and it relies on the support of individuals like yourself and other institutions to keep it free of paid advertising for, lis for listeners. Um, you've if you've been listening recently, you've noted I put a couple of plugs for other Russia-related podcasts, and I'll continue to do that. But I don't want to take any, I don't want to rely on paid advertising here. So please uh, become a patron. That's a way to prevent us from doing that. Find that Patreon button uh, at srbpodcast.org and join the table of ranks. So until next time, bye. Enemies. Take it up a little. I'm not gonna change a bit.